I don't know about you, but I often think of menswear as being quite distinct from men's fashion. I don't feel particularly fashionable per se, and I often struggle to find a balance between classic style and something a little more directional in my wardrobe. One man, though, who has no such struggles at all is Nick Sullivan, the creative director of US Esquire. I'm Alex Fetkovich, a fashion journalist and consultant, and this week Nick and I explore his role at Esquire and proffer some thoughts on how print magazines can best continue to serve readers today. We also challenge one of the most common misapprehensions in menswear, that classic style doesn't change. We caught Nick for a brief half hour during his most recent trip to London from New York. So, with limited time to chat and lots of thoughts jumping around in my head, there was no time to waste. Uh, Well, Nick, thank you for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Uh, We've caught you on a flying visit. Yes. Uh, Very much appreciated. Um, Thanks for taking some time out. I thought we would start... Not by doing what I think often happens, which is recounting your whole story, but by picking up in the present. Um, You recently morphed from the style director of a school. Fashion director. Fashion director. Where I'd been, I'd been fashion director for 15 years, uh, to creative director, which they didn't have that title before. Did they Um, not? No. Ah. Um, Basically, I'm still doing the same job as I was doing before, but with a greater... Uh, a bigger remit, which is sort of overseeing a lot of, uh, you know, pretty much all the creative side of the magazine, which before I was sort of primarily focusing on fashion and covers and content from a from a purely fashion perspective. Right. And are you now working much more closely with the art directors on the team and things like that? Well, I've always worked very closely with them. I mean, in a weird kind of way. I mean, I've always been, I say more than, but I've, I've always liked to be broader than just purely thinking about fashion. I write about watches, I art direct covers, I storyboard stories, come up with ideas for illustrations for, for other kinds of stories. You know, for the most part, it's to do with luxury and fashion. Mm, okay. But it's not just me putting clothes on people. No. Which I much, which I prefer. I'd rather have some variety in, the, that's, in what I'm doing. That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep rattling through. What... What does Esquire US stand for today? How how do you think the the title kind of sits apart from other men's lifestyle magazines in the in the same space? I think I think really for for Esquire, as far as I understand it, and, and you know, obviously Esquire is the is the product of the understanding of whoever's either editing it or working for it ever since it started in thirty three, and and in many ways it's in some ways it's a very simple idea. It's a it's it was the first general interest men's magazine. Mm. It was, uh, you could say it was kind of what, what in theory influencers are supposed to do now. Yeah. Arguably, whether they do or not, it's something else. But, but it, it was to provide a filter across many aspects of a man's life. And, um, and I certainly think when, when it was founded, there was a very definite man in, in mind. It was an urban, middle class, educated man. Mm. Um, at various stages in its history, it's leaned more left, more right more inclusive, less inclusive. Um, but it's really sort of, I think it's really tried to sort of, you know, follow a, a path. I think most editors have had an idea of it as being a magazine that offers a filter on life, but also a very particular point of view, which is maybe not the obvious point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, that's easy to say and harder to do. But I think, you know, for the most part, Esquire stands for 
a certain sense of humor about things, a certain mm -hmm. sense of reality about things. Um, I don't think it's ever really been for fashion victims. Um, no. And so everything that we do really is, is we don't really focus on what Esquire used to be, um, except on what it's always tried to be, mm. if that makes any sense. Um, we have a sort of sense of purpose with the magazine and we try to define that in modern terms every time we do an issue. I think certainly that the sense of wit in Esquire in, in, in the UK edition, but actually particularly in the US edition, which I'm a fan of, uh, really appeals to me. I really enjoy the kind of, I don't know what the word is, almost the poppiness of it and the kind of how direct and useful it is as a magazine. Um, I, I, I don't find a lot of lifestyle magazines that genuinely useful at the moment. Um, right. There's a lot of debate about the usefulness of the, or the functionality or the instructiveness of magazines, uh, especially in America. Uh, and I think a magazine that really doesn't actually help its readers in some way or another in terms of informing them, inspiring them, providing aspirational ideas, or even just telling them how to tie a tie occasionally, even though we haven't really done ties for quite some time. Mm. Um, if you're not really doing that, then what are you for? Um, it's the easiest thing in the world to just take a bunch of clothes off a runway and put them on a model and go, here, aren't we cool? Um, the problem with that is that there's really nothing sort of less cool than trying to be cool. Um, I think being useful to people is far more important. Mm. Um, two two things to branch off with that is one one thing that we, we we just talked about before the mics were on that I love that I would encourage listeners to go away and find if you can, particularly obviously in the states, is uh, largely thanks to Nick Squire now has a regular. I think it's a regular feature every issue where you shoot real men in their own clothes. Is yeah, that, that's is that well, it's brand new, really. Uh, it's something that we've been we've toyed with for some time and it's partly as the sort of moods are shifting in fashion again we you know maybe it's it's wishful thinking but in a certain way we sense a certain frustration with the sort of two-dimensional consumption of fashion that that has become the norm because of social media because of, uh, of instagram that's a look at my clothes look at me i'm i matter because i have these labels has become the sort of all-encompassing kind of language of, of of how men and women increasingly have been expected to consume fashion or to, to view fashion. Um, and we've, we've been feeling, for, I've certainly been feeling for a while, I've always felt that that wasn't really the whole story. Mm. Certainly an, an, interest, an interesting part of the story. But I remember, you know, the, the people that inspired me, you know, not people I necessarily copied or drew direct sort of influences from, but the people who've inspired me are not often people who work in fashion. They're often people who actually by their nature don't work in fashion they do something interesting other than clothes yeah and yet they have great style and i think you know that's something that we've been missing and we've, we're starting to feel that that was a good thing to do so we we sort of trawled social media and we trawl we sort of trawled our address books and we we only made the stipulation that the men couldn't work in fashion directly they're allowed to know people they're allowed to go shopping you know that kind of thing but but they couldn't really sort of have that inside track so the idea was that they had to this had to be each of the guys that we shot had to be someone who defined or had their own look that they had developed and honed and you know whether by accident or by design had ended up being some sort of great inspirational beacon of, of style even though they're not famous mm. 
I think one of the things I love about that is it is so, and this comes back to one of my gripes that I'm sure listeners will be fed up with, with listening to now, which is that how commercial a lot of mainstream media is at the moment. Um, you know, that to, to do that is a, is a radically uncommercial decision. As you've already said yourself, you could have filled those eight pages with look 15 from x brands lookbook and Mm. just reproduced it for commercial purposes but one of the things that i really respect about you and the magazine is you 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 really don't do that um well basically we really do do that um (laughs) that's called credits that's where we you know we do not turn a blind eye to our supporters um but we also feature people who are never going to advertise with us yeah let's face it because if we don't we're dead um, and by, so by the same token, that this works because it actually, the most important thing is the, 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 the communicating a, a point of view. Mm. Um, and I think if you have that on its own, it's great. But you, if you balance that with a view of what's happening, what people could actually go and buy rather than showing someone in clothes that you can't go and buy in this case, I think if you have both of those, you're in a really strong position. I think you're doing something useful. Mm. Um, do you think that some magazines have lost their point of view today? It's very hard to know because I think in, in funny ways, some, I think partly the, the problem with magazines is that, uh, and the problem with fashion in general is that this is an intensely personal view. I, I make no claims for anyone else on this, but that to try and make print magazines echo the way people consume images in social media and digital is to completely miss the point of what print is. To me, print is good if it's not like that. And I think we have sort of become victims of memes and hashtags in print as much as, or at least how we make things seem digestible to people. Because we assume that people only have an appetite for quick hit, shallow information, visual or or, or in te- uh, you know in word form, but I think that's a bit like saying if if you, if if your data tells you everyone loves burgers, you only need to feed them burgers and they'll be happy. And I mm. don't think that's true. Mm. Um, and then you know we are increasingly reliant on data, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, provided it's we use it right and we interpret it right. But I think you know with magazines, they've always been done by a gut feeling rather than by consumer focus groups. I mean, that's one of the things. Magazines who do focus groups are really should not be bothering. They just, <laughs> the moment you start asking everybody what they think, they'll start telling you. And I think you have to, you have to as a magazine, especially in print, and, and even you know, in, in the digital format of that magazine, should be inspirational as well as servicing what you know that the, the customers need. Mm. Well, I, I'd, I'd love to hear that, because um, I've not heard that point of view in, in London recently um but it reminds me of one of my favorite sort of uh, pearls of wisdom from david hyatt who owns hoyt denim uh he says and i say this to sort of my content clients all the time if you're a great cheese maker just make great cheese and people will find you mm. I, I i that i find that sort of that concept so useful not to overthink it not to try and second guess just do what you do do it well understand your own point of view offer it and the tribe will kind of form around you. Yeah. I think really the, the, the change in print, and then everyone's saying, oh, print's dead. I don't think print's really dead. I think print that can adapt and, but can still define what it's there for has a reason to, ex- has a reason to exist, and I think people will find that. 
I think it, it's lending itself towards pushing print to be more specialist. So a magazine that used to rely 40% on style may need to rely on more of that. And maybe it's accepting that you're not going to be a general interest magazine in that respect. That doesn't mean the information you give over can't be useful. Mm. Um, I think you need to do all of that. But but it, but I think there's a certain acceptance that you know the magazines that seem most vibrant to me are ones that are completely doing and making cheese, you know, and they're making great cheese. Um, you know, some of my favourite magazines are actually really, really specialist in this in this market or in others. Who um, were outside of Esquire, of course. Who, yeah. Who? What other media brands are you into? At well, the I still love what you know Monocle does. But there's you know great new French magazine called L'Etiquette, which yeah. is a men's magazine, um, and it's a sort of deep dive into into style that is very much rooted in that idea of real people have great style mm. if you just know where to look for it. Um, what else? I mean, there's a great one, an English one called Hole and Corner, which is sort of craft based, which I've always, always loved. I thought it was, it was just a magazine sort of freeing itself up to the point where say, well, let's just do what we love. Mm. Uh, you know, that was not necessarily a, a rock solid business proposition. Um, so it's a risk, but I think, I think unless you really celebrate the knowledge and your filter, then the, if you're trying to please everybody all the time, then really you're on a hiding to nothing. Lovely people, by now you'll doubtless be familiar with this season's sponsor, the luxury Italian shirting mill Thomas Mason, but we wanted to remind you that time is running out to enter our listener competition, whereby you can win three, not one, not two, but yes, three brand spanking new bespoke shirts cut by Turnbull and Asser in any Thomas Mason bespoke cloth, and there are plenty to choose from. The offer is redeemable at Turnbull's London Davies Street or New York stores, and two listeners have the chance to win. To enter, simply visit handcutradio.com forward slash Thomas Mason and plug in your email address. The lucky two will hear from us at the season's close. It's a really great competition, this, mixing the best of British shirt making with world-class shirting cloth. So don't miss out. Best of luck. And I hope you enjoyed the rest of this episode. Now on with the podcast. Um, question: you, you may or may not wish to express a view on this, but I am duty bound to ask. Uh-huh. Uh, you very briefly mentioned influencers and influencer culture, which is a hot topic at the moment. Mm. Um, what what is your take on influencer culture right now? Like- <clears throat> I think generally the people I've found most influential are the la- the people who are the last thing they would say about themselves is that they were influencers. Mm. I think uh, influencer as a profession, where you write influencer under your in your LinkedIn where your LinkedIn bio is, is not the same as being an actual influencer to me. Mm. Um, you know, I find there are you know fantastic influencers who are photographers, or they're um, adventurers, or they're sportsmen, or they're or they're fashion guys. But I think it's that they do something else. And they happen to have influence because they have knowledge in another field. Yeah. It's, it's hard to define, really. And that's not to say that people who are saying their influences aren't. I mean, some of them are. I just think this sort of could do with a cull. Yeah, yeah. Quite you know, agree. Or, or, you know, a certain, you know, what, what actually defines an influencer. And I think a lot of brands, a lot of 
manufacturers who have sort of steered themselves down that path towards spending money on influencers are finding, you know, likes don't really mean anything. No, no. I um, I just find this idea, and I think I've spoken to a few uh, more classic British brands recently on German Street and Savile Row who've been dabbling maybe over the mm. past 18 months. And a, a few marketeers have now sort of said to me, you know, we realise pretty quickly that if you pay someone X to wear your stuff on the Monday and they are wearing another brand on the Friday, you just can't own them. You know, th- mm. there's no... Uh, that he isn't really your guy. He is your guy for the three days that the that the payment and the the suit of clothes are interesting. Yeah, or the lunch that you've invited it, them to. Yeah, you know. exactly. Um, you know, everyone has a right to make you know make a living out of this this sort of social media explosion. And I think there are some things that have worked better than others. I do think brands and this was a boss of a Swiss watch company, and the Swiss watch company was notoriously slow to get into social media. Um, that was an advantage mm. because they were able to, you know, they didn't get into it because they were just, they were being slow. They weren't being sensible. They were just not really going with it. But by the time they thought they should get into it, they could already see the cracks in it. And, and that's not universal. There are some highly effective influencers who do a great job and are very, you know, conscientious about it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, don't really want to knock anyone because it's a, it's a job yeah. like anything else, yeah. you know? Um, I just question the, 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 the meaning of the word influence, that's all. Mm. Um, but there are people who influence me um, in subliminal ways, in direct ways. And but, but I think you're right. They, that's because they're, they're influential and they have a kind of somehow bring a genuine sense of cool in their area of interest to the table, isn't it? I, I, I always draw a distinction between someone who's influential and an influencer. I'd much rather try and connect with the former. Um, I think it, I think, you know, in many ways, magazines were the original influencers because they provided a context and a backstory and an understanding. Um, and I think it's not sufficient to say, "Here's me in this suit by this brand." Da da. Mm. That's not really helping anyone. It's not helping the brand. I don't think no. in, in most cases, um, because especially I think, and I think it's more in. I hesitate to make separations between men's and women's fashion because they're increasingly similar in many ways. Um, but I think men men have a stronger, longer relationship with brands where there's a backstory, where there's a, a sense of context given. and or, or when it's given, that's when they have a stronger relationship. Yeah. It's true of, you know, cars. It's true of all sorts of things that men get into. I think that, that's what men seek out, isn't it? We all like to geek geek over, out over something, don't we? Yeah, I'm not, um, I've never been entirely sure whether the geeking was just justification for under, uh, unjustifiable expenditure <laughs> or whether that was the genuine reason that people do it. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you buy, if you buy a Mercedes, you sort of know you're going to buy a Mercedes. Mm. But you have to know the kind of miles per gallon and the this and that, just so that you can justify yourself that you've spent three times more than you needed to on a car that will get you from A to B. Mm. You know, but that's the nature of aspiration, is that we, we seek ways to justify something we really don't need. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, um, I do that all the time. <laughs> we have a section in Big Black Book called The Essentials, which was deliberately ironic because nothing at the level that we're talking about is entirely essential. It's actually something that just gives men a kind of joy or a sense of satisfaction. 
but we still set out to to find ways to justify why these things were interesting or or great value or just fun mm. you know because it's it's not if you if you focus solely on solely on value or solely on this thing will last you forever it can get a bit boring after a while yeah i i, I it's so interesting isn't it there's a Something else that keeps coming up is sustainability and this idea of buy less, buy better and buy responsibly. And I completely and utterly back it. But I've, 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 we do need, all need to be more responsible as consumers. But there is also a great joy of just treating yourself to something because it's nice every once in a while. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, think that's it, a validating experience. You know, experience. And, and it's, to a certain extent, you know, for the for the guys that we did for this How We Dress Now story with these real guys in their own clothes, none, none of them have, have reached a point where they, and I don't think anyone really does, reach a point where you've got enough stuff, mm. where you've sort of nailed your identity with your clothing. Because, you know, in many ways, for most of those guys, that what, I, what was really interesting is it, it seemed that they were not interested in clothes to make, a, to change themselves. They they would add things to get nudge closer to their idea of their perfect themselves. Yeah, I don't mean perfect in a kind of oh I'm perfect. I mean a sense that they were presenting the right version of themselves. And so adding new things doesn't really. It's like adding an ingredient to minestrone. You know, it does. It's still minestrone yeah. at the end of the day. Or paella or something. I don't know what you can think of what it would be. <laughs> yeah. But you're adding, oh, I think I'll throw in a pinch of this. And you see something new. And if you can't really adapt in that way and you can't see the the choice that's out there, um, and it could even be sort of quite small things. You just like find a new company that make really cool scarves and you buy a couple of scarves, you know. I think that's part of the fun. To me, that's the biggest part of the fun is, is the mix, mm. you know. Um, I'm really enjoying this. It's a very pithy conversation Good. for a Monday morning. Um, I've got something else to chew over with yeah. you. Um, I'm really interested to get your take. There may be some uh, listeners, and uh, dear listeners, please do just uh, message us or email us if you vehemently disagree. Always interested to get your take. I am finding the notion of classic menswear a little tricky at the moment. Um, I, I feel like we That's need to... talk. It is, it is. I can see people reaching for their uh, keyboards <laughs> as, as, as they're hearing it. I, I, and that, that, you know, anyone listening to this who has sort of ever engaged with you know, my own social media or some of the stuff I've written will know that I am a huge advocate for craftsmanship, tailoring. I love to dress up in a really, really punchy suit and tie. But... I feel like it's we need at some point to move the conversation around independent brands and artisans into slightly fresher territory. I don't I don't know if the idea of wearing a classic suit is that helpful or or relevant today. Um, what's your take on that? Should we should we view classic menswear in classic terms, or is there another kind of way we can approach? Well, there's. A, I mean, I think one of the one of the excuse the pun classic. Uh, misapprehensions about classic men's clothes is that they don't change. Yeah, um, and and I think you know men who are into a certain kind of aesthetic, whether it you know even if they don't call it this, oh maybe that maybe the nineteen thirties of Savile Row was like the the just the perfect moment in men's style, and that's all they really want to be. I did used to think that. I did for, too for a while, um, but they don't live in the 1930s. So whatever they're doing to sort of get towards that style and whatever that inspires them to get, 
they are not getting 1930s clothing. The people who actually go out there and you, and you, you see, I think it's a very UK thing, you see guys who are really into sort of 1950s sort of workwear and kind of, you know, um, and they're really passionate about it to the point of like sourcing like vintage underwear and you yeah, know, yeah. presumably unworn. But <laughs> there is a passion about that. That's, a, that's the 1% of the 1%. I think that, you know, the, the, the listeners on here are into, are into a certain classic style. They still, they still live in the modern world, but they happen to find that version more inspiring than something else. Mm. The problem is, is that each of those, if you take 500 men, each of those guys have a slightly different take on what that perfect 1930s Savile Row thing is and how to get there. Yeah. Because it's hard to buy a suit that actually feels like a 1930s suit. Um, also, 1936 were very many different things because people were still getting them made, but they were getting them made in Tottenham was very different from getting them made in Savile Row. Yeah. You know, a Savile Row suit now is very different from a Savile Row suit then. Even if most of the brands will, will tell you that, you know, they're following the age-old... Yes, they have style blah. of 100 years, yeah. But, you know, suits are lighter than they used to be, so much lighter. And people live in heated homes, you know. Uh, to, say, to, to think of a, a sort of a specific moment as being the only time it was good is to miss out on the evolution of style. There are a lot of reasons why this interview with Nick has inspired me, and this moment is right up there. Of course, classic style changes. If it didn't, we'd all still be wandering about in frock coats. Menswear, even in our own little niche bubble, is always changing, and a huge part of the fun of getting dressed in the mornings is pushing the boundaries. A lot of our guests have said this season so far that we need to add to the conversation. And if we don't experiment, then what's the point? I mean, if King Edward VII hadn't decided to lop the tails off his white tie evening coat, we'd not have the dinner suit. So, don't be afraid to push the boundaries in your own wardrobe. Sometimes it might work, sometimes it won't. But it's only in mixing things up that your own journey through menswear will move forward. I firmly believe that, and so, if you'll excuse me, I have a fringed suede western jacket to wear. And it's a little bit like I was saying before about adding things to your wardrobe. If you don't, if you don't allow for progress, then that's when uh, you know a certain sense of classic style becomes in danger of becoming a bit stagnant. Yeah, and you know, in a greater sense, within fashion, you know, we've been there was a time ten years ago, a little bit more when probably two thousand five, two thousand ten, where sort of a very classic, authentic sense of sort of tailored style became a big thing. Yes. Certainly in America. Um, at the tail end of it, it started to look a little bit dandy, and I think it put a lot of people off. And that often happens with early adopters, middle adopters, late adopters, and it all gets a bit distasteful to the early people, and they say, right, I'm going somewhere else. Um, at that point, that was very much driving what we were doing with Big Black Book. We were, we were focusing on handmade, we were fo focusing on luxury, because it hadn't been for 10 years before that. For mm. 10 years before that, there'd been a big cycle of huge fashion brands, like pushing the argument through their marketing. Uh, it was about wearing big, successful brands. And we sort of just about come full circle. 
you know, uh, after that, in sort of 2010, 2012, the whole tailoring, this sartorial thing, not for everyone. For a lot of people, it started to become a little, I've kind of done that. Yeah. And things lightened up. People stopped wearing ties. They still wore a jacket, but they wanted to do the high-low thing, which was like, okay, I'm going to wear this impeccable jacket, but I'm going to wear it with my jeans. Mm. I'm going to wear it with boots instead of wingtips, you know. Um, so it's cyclical, and usually what happens is the strongest changes happen in reaction to the strongest current trend. So we're at this sort of tipping point right now, and we don't quite know where it's going to go. We have ideas, but I've got theory. Go on. Uh, this you may you may think this is nonsense, but I, this is partially based on my my own experience. But the thing that I'm enjoying the most at the moment, and I, I'm sort of seeing it a little bit with some of the big Italian designer brands that are reinterpreting '70s tailoring, mm. uh, and also you know Heidi Slimane at Celine and things. Uh, the thing that's most interesting to me at the moment is going beyond soft tailoring and finding ways to dress down and make very, very structured tailoring uh, a little bit sort of fresher and a bit more relevant. Whether that's wearing, like, I'm wearing a lot of jackets with big shoulder pads at the moment with double denim mm. uh, and wearing dark jeans and then like a Western shirt underneath. And I'm really enjoying doing that. I don't know whether you think there's something in that. I do. There's... I do. Um, I, I think Hedy, Hedy Slaman's very interesting. He's, you know, he's a genius of, of tapping into a zeitgeist and, and if you can't tap into it, he'll create it. Yeah. Um, there was definitely in his second, first or second women's show, there was this sudden sort of feeling that, because he, he still has that very rock and roll vibe, but there was a very strong, I think it was in, in the women's show for, for this winter, which would have been in February. Mm. There was this really strong sense of these, of his still his sort of like wafy kids and kind of cool looking kids who are the models on the runway, suddenly looking like they're wearing their mum's clothes from the 80s, which was more structured. It was a little more, the Americans called Tony. It's a bit more sophisticated. It seemed grown up, long skirts, tailored skirts and tweed jackets stolen from the, in theory, stolen from the dad. Yeah. Um, that's always a really interesting a sort of tipping point in fashion. And I've seen it before where, I've seen it a few times, uh, where, where the, 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 the idea of classic tailoring comes back, but it's not in the hands of the champions of classic tailoring. It's in the hands of teenagers and people who are into street style and that kind of thing. So what, in theory, I mean, I, I do agree with what you're saying. I think what's happening is that if you're a 22-year-old kid and you've been wearing, like, sneakers and tracksuit and hoodies and it's all designer and it's all fantastic and big logos, and then you see your dad wearing the same stuff, mm. it's absolute kiss of death. So what happens is then you find a younger generation rediscovering stuff that the older generation is tired of. I say older, I mean, generations are kind of a very flexible thing these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have millennials in their late 30s now. So, but I think there is a, you know, the sharp end of fashion always comes from someone choosing or a group of people choosing to do stuff. And sometimes it's the designer picking up on it and sometimes it's the designer creating it or it comes from a movie or, it, you know, that just happens to be set at a certain time. But it, the, the thrust of it is that it looks different to the prevailing. Prevailing, yeah. Look, and now everyone's, you know, you go to an airport now, the most boring uh, European sort of trotting accountant is wearing chic sneakers, maybe quite boring sneakers, but probably kind of cool, okay sneakers, and is wearing a functional 
sort of travel rain jacket. I mean, you sit in an airport like Milan or something and everyone's in navy blue. Mm. And it becomes that, that, that what used to be a non-conformist statement is now completely conformist. So the only way to go is the opposite direction. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? I, I actually, I found myself yesterday, I, wrote, I was writing a piece for Rob Report yesterday, and I found myself looking at a pair of uh, Barbonera Cuban heel zip-up boots for the, for like looking at Cuban heels for the first time in about uh, 10 years, because I think I had a pair of cowboy boots when I was 16 going, oh yeah, I quite like the idea of a pair of Cuban heels with a suit. It's, you know, that's, and that is because I'm really bored of sneakers. I've sort of been looking at what else can I wear? What else can I do? It's so interesting that you, you say that and pick up on that. But I think that's part of the point of fashion is not just about which way is it, is it going. The, the, the point is which, who's going in the opposite direction. Yeah. And that's why I don't, think, I don't think it's safe to say that classic tailoring is in any way kind of tired. I think it could do with a refresh, but I think it, in a sense it will be refreshed by people, by different people. Mm-hmm. So where do you think the suit is going at the moment? Well, I definitely think your point, your earlier point about the suit representing in its proportions and in, its, in the way it's worn is a, is a refreshment of it. I think it, it, largely it's also about changing the way you think about a suit. Because mm. I think you used to use the term suit to refer to someone boring who worked in an office. That association is more or less kind of like forgotten in many ways. It's still there in the culture, but but I think once you you separate the suit, the piece of clothing from the suit, the person, you can then wear that suit in any number of ways, and you can. And for a lot of kids who are kind of like in their, I guess you know, early twenties, they never went through that sort of rite of passage where they, oh, I've got to go and get my first suit to get a job. They never did it. It yeah. wasn't a requirement. So it becomes a, a garment for pleasure rather than a uniform. Right. Whenever they, whenever you know things are not are no longer required to be worn is when you can actually with a bit of distance a bit of time you can actually start to enjoy them again mm. i think that's really exciting um yeah i i think i'm hopeful um and certainly just looking forward to spring summer the summer the spring summer 20 designer collections the suit does seem to be getting way more expressive i think it's quite exciting yeah um just a couple more questions yeah um let's uh actually no next question one of the things that I uh, admire about your work is the way you place an importance on, on the craft of something. And, and you, you, I think, on a personal level as well as a professional level, are interested in stuff that is well-made, um, whether you're dealing with an artisan or a big fashion house. Mm. Um, do you think that, that fashion magazines place enough uh, importance on, on how things are made generally? Um. I can't really speak for other magazines, but but um, I can only really say that I t- to me it, it I'm in I, I'm interested in it to a certain point because I think there is a danger sometimes where if you focus only on the handmade and it all becomes very ex- ex- you know sort of exquisite and this is Ronaldo <laughs> and he has been sewing lapels with his teeth for fifty years yeah that in itself can be a bit stultifying for a lot of people because. There's a certain level of information you sort of don't need. It's good to know it's there. But I think if you don't have, you know, people don't have a responsibility, don't feel a sense of responsibility to at least try and inquire about it, um, then that's when we start to lose contact with the intrinsic sort of value of things. Mm. So 
I can't say that everybody should be writing about their visit to Naples because I don't think I want to, I want to read, them all, read it all. And I don't want to do that all the time either, but I just need to know it's there. And yeah. so I need to scratch that itch every now and again. Um, I have to say sometimes you, sometimes you, you do find when you sort of, you get to, you go and see a company and they trundle out, you know, Ronaldo or Gennaro or somebody. And sometimes companies are doing it just for the sake of it. Yes. Just to justify me. a huge ticket, a huge, a huge um, cost. And that's really hard to sort of explain, it's, it's, to make the difference between a brand that it's in their DNA and a brand that it's in their business plan. Uh, and, and I think fashion has been largely responsible for m sort of creating backstories that kind of weren't there before. Mm. I find that fascinating. I am, um, I've not, I'm going to go away and think about that because I haven't heard that perspective before. But the thing that, that frequently bothers me is big, big designer brands producing clothes that look good at a distance, but that you know are flimsy and fused and don't feel of quality on the body that mm. that I personally because of the kind of I guess the, the kind of little bubble of menswear that I te have tended to inhabit I can spot that a mile off when you go to a press day or you go and you yeah. feel through a collection and that really bothers me I wish it was so, I mean I wish if it was in a way it was so uh, clear cut that you know fashion brands offer less value and tailoring brands offer more value I don't think it's that clear cut at all no I think there are brands that are ready to wear, expensive, but you feel damn fine in them. Mm -hmm. And there are tailoring brands. I'll probably get shot if I go down Savile Row there. I'm not talking about Savile Row, okay. Cool. Uh, there are bespoke tailoring brands where you put the clothes on and you feel like they're wearing you. Mm -hmm. Because the, the construction is, you know, bulletproof. It's the bit past the test of time. But it it doesn't pass the test of modernity in a way. Yeah. Because people, you know, I think one of the biggest advantages that we men have gained from the last 10 years of fashion is we realize that we can, f we expect to look good and feel comfortable at the same time. Now it's true that a really beautifully bespoke suit that's made for you, in theory, should be as comfortable as a tracksuit. But it isn't always, I don't think. And I think that largely depends on the cut of the house and the cut of you and how well you merge together with it. It's a bit like having a barber, mm. you know, and you go and get the same haircut from three different barbers and they're, not, they're never the same. Yeah. It's partly the shape of your head and it's partly the scissors, you know. Um, it's a kind of hard one to really explain, but I think, you know, men's style is, is rich if it allows change. It's rich if it doesn't make assumptions about the old stuff is the only good stuff. Um, I think it, it's not, it's it's you've got to allow for it to change all the time, and you've got to also allow to you know to go back to the the group of guys that we shot. Not one of them looked similar to another one. No, and we pretty much had no one in any kind of classic tailoring, and that's not because we didn't want someone. We just couldn't find someone that was doing that. Was doing that in the in the time that we had to find them. But we are going back to it, and we do think it's something that that is really useful to do. And it's, it's as much an exercise for us as it is for the readers. Um, 
and we're hoping that it will will sort of spread into other esquires around the world. Mm. Um, but each done on their own terms in their own markets. Well, I am. Um, I can't wait to see see the next issue. Grab my next copy. Um, Nick, thank you for that. That there was a lot of fascinating stuff in there for me. Um, really, really interested to to get your take on where the industry is at. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, there we are, gang. That's your lot for this week. Head to Instagram to watch my digest of the conversation this Saturday morning. And don't forget to please rate and review the podcast. It makes a huge difference to our visibility and boosts us up the charts. Thank you to my producers at Birch for making this project possible. Check out the agency's work at birchlondon.com. Thank you also to Mr. Joe Boyd for mastering this episode and for producing our jazzy theme music. Last but by no means least, thank you very much to you for tuning in and we'll see you back here next week.